Chapter Twenty Nine Smith in the City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. That's L I B R I V O X. dot b l o g s o m e dot com. Today's reading by Miet. Smith in the City, by P. G. Woodhouse, Chapter Twenty Nine, and Mike's. For nearly two hours, Mike had been experiencing the keenest pleasure that it had ever fallen to his lot to feel. From the moment he took his first ball till the luncheon interval, he had suffered the acutest discomfort. His nervousness had left him to a great extent, but he had never really settled down. Sometimes by luck and sometimes by skill, he had kept the ball out of his wicket, but he was scratching, and he knew it, not for a single over. Had he been comfortable, on several occasions he had edged balls to leg and through the slips in quite an inferior manner, and it was seldom that he managed to hit with the centre of the bat. Nobody is more alive to the fact that he is not playing up to his true form than the batsman. Even though his score mounted little by little into the twenties, Mike was miserable. If this was the best he could do on a perfect wicket, he felt there was not much hope for him as a professional. The poorness of his play was accentuated by the brilliance of Joe's. Joe combined science and vigour to a remarkable degree. He laid on the wood with a graceful robustness which drew much cheering from the crowd. Beside him, Mike was oppressed by that leaden sense of moral inferiority which weighs on a man who has turned up to dinner in ordinary clothes when everybody else has dressed. He felt awkward and conspicuously out of place. Then came lunch, and after lunch a glorious change. Volumes might be written on the cricket lunch and the influence it has on the run of the game. How it undoes one man and sends another back to the fray like a giant refreshed. How it turns the brilliant fast bowler into the sluggish medium, and the nervous bat into the masterful smiter. On Mike, its effect was magical. He launched wisely and well, chewing his food with the concentration of a thirty-three bites a mouthful crank, and drinking dry ginger ale. As he walked out with Joe after the interval, he knew that a change had taken place in him. His nerve had come back, and with it, his form. It sometimes happens at cricket that when one feels particularly fit, one gets snapped in the slips in the first over, or clean bowled by a full toss. But neither of these things happened to Mike. He stared in and began to score. Now, there were no edgings through the slips and snicks to leg. He was meeting the ball in the centre of the bat and meeting it vigorously. 
two boundaries in successive balls off the fast bowler. Hard, clean drives past extra cover put him at peace with all the world. He was on top. He had found himself. Joe, at the other end, resumed his brilliant career. His century and Mike's fifty arrived in the same over. The bowling began to grow loose. Joe, having reached his century, slowed down somewhat, and Mike took up the running. The score rose rapidly. A leg-theory bowler kept down the pace of the run-getting for a time, but the bowlers at the other end continued to give away runs. Mike's score passed from sixty to seventy, from seventy to eighty, from eighty to ninety. When the Smiths, father and son, came on to the ground, the total was ninety-eight. Joe had made a hundred and thirty-three. Mike reached his century, just as Smith and his father took their seats. A square cut off the slow bowler was just too wide for point to get to. By the time third man had sprinted across and returned the ball, the batsman had run too. Mr. Smith was enthusiastic. "'I tell you,' he said to Smith, who was clapping in a gently encouraging manner, the boy's a wonderful bat. I said so when he was down with us. I remember telling him so myself. I've seen your brothers play, I said, and you're better than any of them. I remember it distinctly. He'll be playing for England in another year or two. Fancy putting a cricketer like that into the city. It's a crime. I gather, said Smith, that the family coffers had got a bit low. It was necessary for Comrade Jackson to do something by way of saving the old home. He ought to be at the university. Look, he's got that man away to the boundary again. They'll never get him out. At six o'clock, the partnership was broken, Joe himself running out in trying to snatch a single where no single was. He had made a hundred and eighty-nine. Mike flung himself down on the turf with mixed feelings. He was sorry Joe was out, but he was very glad indeed of the chance of a rest. He was utterly fagged. A half-day match once a week is no training for first-class cricket. Joe, who had been playing all the season, was as tough as India rubber, and trotted into the pavilion as fresh as if he had been handed a brief spell at the nets. Mike, on the other hand, felt that he simply wanted to be dropped into a cold bath and left there indefinitely. There was only another half-hour's play, but he doubted if he could get through it. He dragged himself up wearily as Joe's successor arrived at the wickets. He had crossed Joe before the latter's downfall, and it was his turn to take the bowling. Something seemed to have gone out of him. He could not time the ball properly. The last ball of the over looked like a half-volley, and he hit out at it. But it was just short of a half-volley, and his stroke arrived too soon. The bowler, running in the direction of mid-on, brought off an easy C and B. Mike turned away towards the pavilion. He heard the gradually swelling applause in a sort of dream. 
It seemed to him hours before he reached the dressing-room. He was sitting on a chair, wishing that someone would come along and take off his pads, when Smith's card was brought to him. A few moments later, the old Etonian appeared in person. "'Hullo, Smith,' said Mike. "'By Jove, I'm done!' "'How little Willie saved the much,' said Smith. "'What you want is one of those gin and ginger beers we hear so much about. "'Remove those pods, and let us flit downstairs in search of a couple. "'Well, Comrade Jackson, you have fought the good fight this day. "'My father sends his compliments. "'He is dining out, or he would have come up. "'He's going to look in at the flat latish. "'How many did I get?' asked Mike. "'I was so jolly done I didn't think of looking.' "'A hundred and forty-eight of the best,' said Smith. "'What will they say at the old homestead about this? "'Are you ready? "'Then let us test this fruity old ginger-beer of theirs.' "'The two batsmen who had followed the big stand "'were apparently having a little stand all of their own. "'No more wickets fell before the drawing of stumps. "'Smith waited for Mike while he changed "'and carried him off in a cab to Simpsons.' a restaurant which, as he justly observed, offered two great advantages, namely, that you need not dress, and secondly, that you paid your half-crown, and were then at liberty to eat until you were helpless, if you felt so disposed, without extra charge. Mike stopped short of this giddy height of mastication, but consumed enough to make him feel a great deal better. Smith eyed his inroads on the menu with approval. "'There is nothing,' he said, "'like victualising up before an ordeal.' "'What's the ordeal?' said Mike. "'I propose to take you round to the club anon, "'where I trust we shall find Comrade Bickersdyke. "'We have much to say to one another.' "'Look here,' "'I'm hanged,' began Mike. "'Yes, you must be there,' said Smith. "'Your presence will serve to cheer Comrade B up. "'Fit compels me to deal him a nasty blow, "'and he will want sympathy. "'I've got to break it to him that I am leaving the bank.' "'What? Are you going to chuck it?' "'Smith inclined his head. "'The time,' he said, "'has come to part.' It has served its turn. The startled whisper runs round the city. Smith has had sufficient. What are you going to do? I propose to enter the University of Cambridge, and there to study the intricacies of the law, with a view to having a subsequent dash at becoming Lord Chancellor. By Jove, said Mike, you're lucky. I wish I were coming too. Smith knocked the ash off his cigarette. "'Are you absolutely set on becoming a pro?' he asked. "'It depends on what you call set. It seems to me it's about all I can do. "'I can offer you not an entirely scaly job,' said Smith, "'if you feel like taking it. "'In the course of conversations with my father during the match this afternoon, "'I gleaned the fact that he is anxious to secure your services as a species of agent. "'The vast Smith estates, it seems, need a bright boy to keep an eye upon them. 
Are you prepared to accept the post? Mike stared. Me? Dash it all! How old do you think I am? I'm only nineteen. I had suspected as much from the alabaster clearness of your unwrinkled brow, but my father does not wish you to enter upon your duties immediately. There would be a preliminary interval of three, possibly four years at Cambridge, during which, I presume, you would be learning diverse facts concerning spuds, termites, and the like. At least, said Smith airily, I suppose so. Far be it from me to dictate the line of your researches. Then I'm afraid it's off, said Mike gloomily. My partner couldn't afford to send me to Cambridge. That obstacle, said Smith, can be surmounted. You would, of course, accompany me to Cambridge in the capacity which you enjoy at the present moment of my confidential secretary and adviser. Any expenses that might crop up would be defrayed from the Smith family chest. Mike's eyes opened wide again. Do you mean, he asked bluntly, that your partner would pay for me at the varsity? No, I say, dash it, I mean, I couldn't. Do you suggest, said Smith, raising his eyebrows, that I should go to university without a confidential secretary and adviser? No, but I mean, protested Mike. Then that's settled, said Smith. I knew you would not desert me in my hour of need, Comrade Jackson. What will you do? asked my father, alarmed for my safety. Among these wild undergraduates, I fear for my repit. Have no fear, father. I replied, Comrade Jackson will be beside me. His face brightened immediately. Comrade Jackson, he said, is a man in whom I have the supremest confidence. If he is with you, I shall sleep easy of nights. It was after that that the conversation drifted to the subject of agents. Smith called for the bill and paid it in the affable manner of a monarch signing a charter. Mike sat silent, his mind in a whirl. He saw exactly what had happened. He could almost hear Smith talking his father into agreeing with his scheme. He could think of nothing to say. As usually happened in any emotional crisis in his life, words absolutely deserted him. The thing was too big. Anything he could say would sound too feeble. When a friend has solved all your difficulties and smoothed out all the rough places which were looming in your path, you cannot thank him as if he had asked you out to lunch. The occasion demanded some neat, polished speech, and neat, polished speeches were beyond Mike. "'I say, Smith,' he began. Smith rose. "'Let us now,' he said, "'collect our hats and meander to the club, where, I have no doubt, we shall find Comrade Bickersdyke, all unconscious of impending misfortune, dreaming pleasantly over coffee and a cigar in the lower smoking room. End of chapter 29